I could have that picture of neighbor to neighbor up. I want you to be aware, folks, of the progress that's happening. This is our community services for this community. And there may be some places where uh, the churches are not supporting it like they might, but uh, the foundation is in, the footer is in, the foundation is in, the insulation is on the outside of the foundation. They have backfilled it. And the next step is going to be pouring the cement floor. And I want us to keep praying as they go forward with this. Later this fall, there'll be a building up there, and hopefully through the winter they'll finish it. But this is wonderful progress. We're praising the Lord for the ministry there. And then also, if you don't mind, if you put that picture up of our Boundary Waters trip, um, I usually wouldn't do this during this period of time, but uh, this, this picture, I showed a big fish last week. I wanted to show you a big fish this week. Uh, that fish was caught. It's, it's more than half as long as I am tall. It would make you think twice about swimming in the water. But uh, it is okay, we did it. I'm showing this to you because as Christians, there were 42 of us up there with the 7th and 8th graders and their parents. We had a lot of fun. We do it every Labor Day. And I'm inviting those of you that uh, aren't old enough yet to anticipate it and those of you that it is a church and school event. Very good. Thank you for those photos. Also, I want to remind you tonight is our El Salvador Vespers. Um, You know, on television, you may have seen people light dynamite, but you know it's all, it's made by Hollywood. Tonight, we're going to show you a little video that is not made by Hollywood. And one of the sites that has to be excavated, they actually were using dynamite to blow it up, and they sent us a video of it. It's really kind of interesting. So come out and join us. We have a great work going on there as well. And we'll have that Vespers tonight at 7 o'clock. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now as we open the Word. Open our hearts. Shape and focus our lives. Help us to make the decisions you have in mind for us to make. And may they change us and point us towards the destiny of heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As a kid, I'd play uh, hide-and-seek. Most of us have played hide-and-seek. I was a pretty good hider. As a matter of fact, I could find fantastic places to hide. One of the most favorite places to hide for me would be when my hiding place was above the viewing of the looker. So I found a tree. I'd get up in the tree, and I would love to watch as my younger siblings ran around looking for me And I'm not sure I even wanted to come out when they gave up, you know, called Ali Ali Income Free. But, you know, they'd walk around, and because they were looking in the wrong place, they never found me. Now, there was an exception to this. Um, And some of you might be able to relate to this. You had the best hiding place in the world, and you ran to where it was, whether it was in a bed or under a closet or whatever. But let's just go back to my tree. And some of these moments were mine. It's like I'd climb the tree, and then all of a sudden I'd look down. And there was my dog sitting at the bottom of the tree. It's like, go away. In our scripture this morning, we heard the story of two tribes, which turned into two and a half, the tribes of Gad and Reuben, and also half of the tribe of Manasseh, who were on the east side of the Jordan where the king of Og had been conquered. And the, the, the plains for grazing were fantastic. And they came to Moses and they said, we'd like to live here. And the, the uh, visceral reaction by their leader was such that it, it, it was very, very strong. 
As a matter of fact, it was so strong that he went back to saying, you're doing the same thing that's already been done. Can't you or haven't you learned anything? Take your Bibles and open there to uh, the book of Numbers chapter 32. This is one of those moments when it's easy to forget about the larger group. And this morning, I want to tell you that I don't think they came the way they ended up. They showed up with not only Moses, but a whole group of leaders to make their request. This was a a governance decision. And they come, and they have what they consider to be a very reasonable uh, hope. But they had forgotten about the rest of the group. Numbers 32, verse 5, they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Oh my. Imagine how this sounds to a leader who would give his eye teeth to cross the Jordan. Imagine how this would sound to Moses, who in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 3 will plead with God, just let me cross and see the land, who tells us in the first chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 1 that it is an 11-day journey from Mount, from Kadesh into the promised land, or from Mount Seir to Kadesh, which is on the borders of the promised land. What could have taken 11 days from Mount Sinai on to their hopes being materialized took 40 years. And now, right on the verge of crossing again, you've got a group of leaders who have forgotten how much some have wanted to go and how much harder and how much faith it's going to take. And so they say, don't make us cross the Jordan. This fits us just fine. We're feeling really good. The king of Og had amazing bullocks and oxen. And this is the reason why they could feed on this bountiful pasture land. And that's who we are. Let us stay. But, verse 6, Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, and you can imagine it was with a bit of force, shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Whoa. Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. You remember the 12 spies. 10 came back. We don't know their names. 12 came back. 10 came back with a bad report. 2 came back with a good report. We only remember the two who were men of faith, Caleb and Joshua. But Moses says, you're doing the exact same thing. I want you to notice in verse 11... It says, none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me fully. When you read this story in its original context, this phrase, follow me fully, is a big deal. And it's a big deal here. Verse 12, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. Skip down to verse 14. Now behold, you've risen up in your father's place. This is the second time he said it. A place, a brood of sinful men, and you still, you add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. Now listen, I want you to know from the very front side of this message, this is not a storyline about sins of commission. In other words, this is not a story about things people did that were wrong. Now the request was wrong. But the burning of the Lord was not about anything that had happened yet. It was about the fact that some weren't willing or weren't planning to do what was going to need to be done to make it into the promised land. 
This is a sermon about sins of omission. In other words, this is a sermon about things that we should have done but haven't. And maybe about things that should be done but we don't want to do. Moses is not going to mince words. He's going to speak powerfully to them. And in the dialogue, they began showing that they are not just like those that wandered in the wilderness, that they are not men of faithlessness and fear. And so they make a plan. And the plan is, we will establish sheepfolds and fortified cities and homes for our wives and our little ones and some of the men to stand, but we'll march over. Now, Moses is so concerned that this people will go backwards on their promise that he comes down to verse 20, and this is what he says. If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven his enemies out from before him, and the land subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, And this land shall be yours for possession before the Lord. This is good. But if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned. And be sure your sin will find you out. I'm here to tell you today that the Seventh-day Adventist church in the Western world has a dog sitting at the base of its tree. The Bible says, though you make your home in the munitions of the rocks, don't think that you're going to be okay there. This is not an age to be buying up dehydrated mashed potatoes and TVP and digging bunkers for ourselves. This is not an age in which we think about how we can protect the great experience we've had for the last six decades in this country, experiencing the great American dream. Not so great for our spirituality, I'm afraid. This is not a time for those things. This is a time for us to stop and realize we've been found out. Because the devil who's looking for us has figured it out. As a matter of fact, he's facilitated it. Give them everything they want. Allow them to make more money in a day than some people make in a month. Give them nice homes, maybe two or three. Give them nice cars, maybe three or four. Give them multiple timeshares and opportunities to do all kinds of things. Make sure that they enjoy the blessing. Just make sure the blessing doesn't get passed on. And let their spiritual experience stagnate and mold, and decay, and rot. You see, when we look at the statistics and we realize that the robustness of the world church is not found in the first world churches, the dog is sitting at the base of the tree, we've been found out. The problem is it's not a game. It is a battle for the souls of men, and our children and our lives are probably the first to be lost in the unfought wars. Reading in the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White speaks about the role of bigger churches. Now, if you're listening to me here today, you're probably from a bigger church. This church has over a thousand members. If you're here from Stevensville, there's over 400 members in that church. You might actually be sitting here today and you come from a church where there's only 50 on the books and 25 attending. You'll like what I'm about to read. But I tell you something, We have camped out on the wrong side of the Jordan. We've not just camped out. We've built homes. We're on the east side of the Jordan, but we're supposed to be in efforts of conquest until Jesus comes. What's likely to be lost, if we're not, is our own souls and those of our children. I want you to think about that big uh, statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream up there in Big Rapids. There's a pastor in California, if he's still alive, 
If he's not alive, I'll guarantee you he went to his grave praying for a boy. Because some church somewhere said, you know, we ought to spend the money and go to the inconvenience and all the trouble of getting that 20,000-pound piece of redwood that's been architected and artistically shaped into a reminder of the image because somebody went to war. There's somebody's boy who's reconnected, and there's a pastor in Big Rapids who now has the name of another pastor's son. I'm here to tell you, friends, today, the worst thing that can happen to the Seventh-day Adventist church is it can forget Jesus had two commands before he left this world. One was go, and the other was wait. You wait and pray for that outpouring of the Spirit, but you go after that. And when we look at the three angels' message, we see there are three angels flying in the midst of heaven with a megaphone to get the attention of the world. And when we stop, we lose. When we go, we win. So I want you to think about this now as we look at advice. Not advice, inspired counsel in regard to larger churches. Ellen White writes, This is in your bulletin. Satan's power is increasing. He is terribly in earnest. Now that should make us all stop and say, is my life in the smallest fraction in earnest like his? Satan's power is increasing. I don't want to ask anybody to affirm this with an amen because that means so be it. But I am here to tell you, you don't have to have very wise eyes to see that Satan's power is increasing and he's terribly in earnest knowing that his time is short. So he's working with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. Those who would escape his wiles, that's me, that's you, must be vigilant and determined. If we would meet the demands for this time, we must put on the whole armor of God, go forth with energy, perseverance, and unswerving faith. In God alone is our strength. Now listen to these next sentences and put your Bible, put your bulletin in your Bible to look at this later on through the week. Indolence and slothfulness, presumption and self-confidence will alike bring defeat and destruction. God takes cognizance. That means he pays attention to the works of all. Those who have sought their ease and shunned care, anxiety, and labor for the cause of God may be sure that their sin will find them out. As he searched out Achan, he will search them out and pronounce a curse. He will surely pronounce a curse upon them. That doesn't fit your picture of God, does it? We're living in an age of so much assurance. You're supposed to feel good all the time. If you don't feel good all the time, something's wrong with the preacher. Or maybe it's your spouse. But God is a real father. God is a real dad and a real mom. He represents both sides of the gender spectrum. And real dads and real moms know that to take a child from infancy to effective functional adulthood, there are moments of life-shaping confrontation and conflict. There are times when the willfulness of the child is exerted, and if the parent doesn't have a greater willfulness and a greater dependence in prayer on the strength and power of God to do what's right, the child will win, which means the child will lose, and all of society will pay a price as well as the parents and as well as the church and as well as the school. We have a whole society that's working like this. You make sure you don't make me feel bad. 
living in the antitypical day of judgment and preaching all the time non-judgmentalism. Now, isms are bad words, and none of us are to be judgmental. But I'm here to tell you today that in the same way that God writes in Malachi chapter 3, when we rob God, what's not written into the storyline so easily is that we rob ourselves. And there is something that is owed of God that's not just financial, although it includes that. There is something that is owed to God that is of time and talent and interest and effort. Now, if you're sitting here today with the other three to 400 people that are in this auditorium, you get the benefits of a big church. If I would have stayed in my little churches all my life, I probably never would have made a mission trip because it was beyond the resources of that little church. If I would have been in a little church and I found out about the great image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's no way that we would have had that because we had to put up $8,000 just to get it here. Others are helping contribute to that as they share it with us. There's no way that many of the things that we've undertaken, whether it's a church school or other mission trips or a certain threshold of excellency in programming could ever happen because the efforts to maintain the organization are primarily for survival until you hit a certain threshold and then you can go in to different dynamics of doing. Would we be surprised if we found out that in the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy, the prompter tells us that the big churches should help the little churches. Now, we're doing some of that. We've built a church in Montana. We've built six churches, and we'll build six more in El Salvador. We're facilitating the experience of pastors and lay people around this conference to go and see what the world church needs. All of these things are being provided by bigger churches. But our goal is not to continue creating bigger churches, especially if we're big already. Our goal is to strengthen other places so that their strength and their hope can be increased. She writes, Our duty to act as missionaries for God in the very position where He's placed us has been greatly overlooked by us as a people. Many are eagerly turning from present duties and opportunities to some wider field. Many imagine that in some other position they would find it less difficult to obey the truth. Our larger churches are looked upon as enjoying great advantages and there is among our people a growing tendency to leave their special post of duty and move to Battle Creek or to the vicinity of some other large church. Listen to her commentary. This practice not only threatens the prosperity and even the life of smaller churches, but it is preventing us from doing the very work which God has given us to do, and it's destroying our spirituality and usefulness as a people. Now let's let this settle in. Not only should we not extricate ourselves from places where our position, our person, makes a disproportionate impact, but in the very doing of it, we are weakening the going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and beyond. And beyond that, 
It is destroying our spirituality and our usefulness as a people. So what's the translation? You coming to church every week in Berrien County and filling a seat is not enough to prepare you for heaven. There is a role in which Holy Spirit uses you. The education and the experience of the angels transform your service and you experience a self-actualization which is an actualization of the Holy Spirit and you are changed as you are the changer. This is the call of God to all of His people. In Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 12 it says, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. No, it's not enough for you to return a tithe and give an offering. God is looking for your heart in service to reach all of the other people of the earth that have yet to know there's a God who could actually be loved if the truth was only told about Him. This is the Adventist church's mandate, mission, and privilege. Larger churches, she writes, should labor to build up and encourage those that are weak in number. We are to train the youth of ability to become missionaries. And then in describing the role of larger churches and little churches, she goes to Luke chapter 10. Could we go there? Luke chapter 10, and we'll look at verse 30. You'll recognize what it is very quickly. Luke chapter 10. It's a story. You could call it a parable, except that it really happened. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 30. Luke 10, verse 30. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Jesus replied, because the question was, who's my neighbor? He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him. And they went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What's it the story of congregation? Who is it? It's the Good Samaritan. But my subject matter is not so much about the Good Samaritan. I hate to co-opt the story for just this part of it because it's the negative part. But Ellen White takes this story and she co-ops it to describe big churches who look the other way when they know about little churches that are suffering to survive. Most of you came from littler churches. <laughs> How do I know that? Because there's a little under 200,000 members in this union and most of the churches are little. It just so happens you're sitting in a bigger one today, not the biggest. The question is, what are we losing out on because we have not embraced a methodology and a mission to do something more with what we've got? What blessings would be meted out, she writes in the Review and Herald, July 21, 1891, talking about bigger churches helping little churches. What blessings would be meted out to the churches that help in this way? And what love on the part of the poorer churches as they realized that they were watched over for good. I've pastored churches where only four people came to church. 
So what's that mean? If one of those members moved away, I lost 25% of my congregation. That'd be like 100 people walking out of church right now. That'd be like 100 of you getting up and leaving and never coming back. But you know, in this church, if one walked out, it's a half a percent. But you know what? In this conference, there are probably 50 churches that are living life on the bubble. I sat in a meeting this last week with the district superintendents. I listened to one superintendent pour out his heart. He said, I have pastors that are pastoring three churches. And two of them are sick and dying. And five years from now, they may not be here. He said, I feel for those pastors who cannot help but feel like failures as their churches, not his words but mine, head towards the grave. How many generations of spiritual sweat and sacrifice are about to be extinguished? Ellen White will write that these churches like ours might be hesitant. Some have hesitated because they feared that the work outlined would require more means than was at their command. Welcome to life on planet earth. God's work is always going to need more than we've got. That's, it's a faith journey. That's why he says you've got to put your foot in the water. You've got to learn to hear the voice. Take a step and let's see if the waters don't stop flowing so you can cross or start flowing so you can drink. But remember, we're going from this spiritual Egypt over to that heavenly Canaan and we're going to have to cross that spiritual Jordan. And it's going to take faith of the same nature as it took thousands of years before. Friends, we can't hesitate because it looks bigger than we are. It's always going to look bigger than we are. But she goes on to write, but I have urged our brethren to step forward by faith and follow the leadings of divine providence. Christ has bidden his servants to go out into all parts of the field and listen to this. He, he will sustain every laborer. Can you say amen? If God calls you to do something, it's not on you for the sustenance. It's on you for the willingness. Those who labor in obedience to the command of the leader and seek to warn the inhabitants of the large cities, angels will prepare the way before every such worker. God's messengers need not, God's messengers need to arouse themselves from their lethargy and lay aside everything that may hinder them from doing the work that God is now calling upon them to do in behalf of the great cities of our land. And as they advance in faith, the salvation of God will be revealed and prosperity. Do you like that word? Prosperity will attend their efforts. The name of God will be magnified and the coming of Christ will be hastened. Living life on the wrong side of the Jordan. If the deacons could pass out the decision cards now. I have a card for everyone here today. I want you to look at it. And I want you to pray over it, and I want you to think about it. Safe and secure on the wrong side of the Jordan. That's where we find ourselves. How is it that the American church, with so much education and so much opportunity and so much freedom and so much money, could find itself running in reverse? It's because there is a conquest before us, and too few have found themselves at the front of the battle, and too many have found themselves safe and secure on the wrong side of Jordan. 
These cards have six boxes on them. I'm going to start reading them to them as they come to you. The first box I hope everyone could want to check. I am inaugurating today, by God's grace, a new awareness, if not a new ministry. I want to help revive a church in Michigan. I hope everybody can check that box. These little churches have produced some of the mightiest spiritual giants. They cannot be allowed to let their light flutter and flicker and go out. I want to help revive a church in Michigan. The next boxes are how we could do it. Number two, I will commit a summer to reviving a Michigan church. Yes, this is our conference. We can go around the world to Africa and Brazil and El Salvador and Inter-America and South America, but there's a work right here. Now, I'm not asking anybody to make a commitment to work for free. I'm looking to find probably young men and young women who will pair up or go in threes and we actually provide a scholarship. Do you know if three young people with a part of their education showed up in Podunkville, Michigan, and they had been going for four months in advance, once a Sabbath, let's say January through May, five months, and they were actually meeting people in the little church they're going to minister to, and they were getting the arrangements in place for their vacation Bible school and their revival meetings and their visitation program, etc. If that was happening January through May, and then come June, those people were there living Encouraging the youth of that church. You know, there are some churches, when you show up to go to church, you have little kids, you're the only, your kids are the only kids in the whole church. Do you not have teenagers or 20-something show up? It says to all those little kids, you grow up for Jesus and you'd be strong for Him just like me, even if you're by yourself. I will commit a summer to reviving a Michigan church. I'm looking for about 10 people, none of them volunteers, that will make a commitment, all of them volunteering in spirit, but all of them who could make some scholarship to go to one of our schools. I will commit a summer, and of course I've just described some meetings on both sides, to reviving a Michigan church. Now, we have a unique opportunity in the third box. You know, there's a church on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, and we've built an apartment in it. It's not done. By the way, Plumbers and electricians, we could use you. But I'm planning on next summer that this church will be done, and I'm looking for a couple volunteers who, again, we would provide some kind of stipend to. I would be willing to serve for a year on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation. We did not build the building only for it to sit there with lacking the people resources it needs. Could I hear an amen? That building is a function of probably a dozen years of ministry. And for some reason, God in His providence has funded it in miraculous ways, of which I can't go over in this short message. I'm looking for some volunteers, people that would be willing to say, I'll donate as an incontinent missionary uh, in this North American division. I want to know more about serving as a student missionary. You know, my, my daughter called me on Thursday night, which was Friday morning in Palau. And um, I was still here at the church in the evening, and I went out and sat down. I was outside. I sat down on one of the benches, and this is what she told me. It made my heart sing. She told me that later that night, which was Friday morning for me, she was going to be doing the Vespers thought for all the student missionaries. I don't know if she did a Vespers thought in the whole five, six years she's lived here. But I'll tell you, she was doing the Vespers thought on Friday evening for the Vespers 
with all the student missionaries at Palau. And then she went on to tell me the next day at church she was doing the children's story. Now her daddy does the children's story here when he's preaching. And so that window doesn't open up for a lot of people. But you know what? In a period of about 24 hours, she was serving God in two ways where they, they needed her to serve and she needed to be serving. Now I'm going to go for all you builders and people that can handle paintbrushes and drills and miter saws. Fifth box. I would donate a week. I'm looking for some week-long missionaries. I would donate a week of my time. This would be with a group. But I would donate a week of my time repairing and remodeling Michigan churches. There are churches, some of which are getting ready to fall down around their members. They don't have the money and they don't have the know-how. And they don't have the strength. I'm looking for some year who know how to do these things who would have a burden. You don't have to be a skilled laborer. We would need some skilled laborers in some of these groups for sure. But that's what I'm looking for because God is looking and I just happen to be announcing. And lastly, I'm looking for people that will financially support a missionary effort like those listed above. And I'm asking them to make a difference with their pocketbook. You may not be able to go. You may be so busy making money that all God wants you to do is fund those who can't make money like you. I don't know. But I do know this. In preparing for this sermon, one of my associates said to me, have you ever heard this quote? Elijah, with stern and commanding voice, cries out, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Not one. I want you to think of Theodore Henderson, six grown adult men, one 17-year-old girl in a Florida swamp. Good news, there was one. But on the mountain that day with Elijah there on Carmel, not one in that vast assembly dare utter one word for God and show their loyalty to Jehovah. What astonishing deception and fearful blindness. Like a dark cloud had covered Israel. The blindness and apostasy had not closed in about them subtly, but had come upon them gradually and they, as they had not heeded the word of reproof and warning which the Lord had sent them because of their pride and their sins. They, in this fearful crisis... Now listen, folks. It looked like a crisis to Elijah. I'm not sure it looked like a crisis to them. They all came to Mount Carmel with full bellies. Ahab and Jezebel were terrible spiritual examples, but financially everything was fine. Of course, it hadn't rained, so maybe they weren't quite so full. But prior to the warnings of Elijah and the and the experience of God. They were in a crisis now because they had had full bellies and had been complacent and had didn't care. That blindness and apostasy had not closed in on them suddenly, but gradually, and then in this fearful crisis, in the presence of idolatrous priests and the apostate king, they remained neutral. Neutral. And these last sentences, I don't know that I had ever, I'm sure I've read them, but I didn't remind, remember them. 
If God abhors one sin above another, of which His people are guilty, it is of doing... Are you ready? Fill in the blank. It is of doing... You got your blank? (laughs) We started out, I told you this was a, a sermon about sins of omission as opposed to sins of commission. This is a sermon about what hasn't been done, not about what's being done that's wrong. If God abhors one sin above another of which his people are guilty, it is of doing nothing in the case of an emergency. Indifference or neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as of a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. Listen, friends. Nobody told you you couldn't come to church here today. Nobody told me I needed to stand at this altar and pronounce two men married. Nobody's told me that someone confused about their gender gets to go in any bathroom they want to go in in this church. But I want to tell you, the ascendancy of secular humanism in this society will not stop with allowance. There is an activism surrounding these things that has turned right into wrong and wrong into right. And my wife was reading to me out of one of the books for a class she's taking, and the author said in some of the colleges, wasn't Adventist, talking about secular universities, but in some colleges it is a more grievous sin for me to tell you you're doing wrong than for me to practice wrong. This is America, a great country, with fantastic principles. But if you think that we are not on the cusp of a crisis, you need to think again. The devil has lulled us into an apathetic affluence. And the dogs are at the bottom of the tree. And our sin is finding us out. Your life is busy? It probably is. But maybe we're going to need to drop a few things out things that don't have anything to do with the survival of God's message, His people, and His church. Maybe some of those, those wonderful indulgences of a well-healed, well-educated home will have to go away. Maybe we'll have to make a priority of spiritual victories for Christ and the winning of souls. And maybe our kids will grow up less accomplished in this or less confident in that. But maybe they'll grow up with a true confidence in Christ. Listen. When I took my boy to India the first time, he was in the eighth grade. He preached his first sermon. When he was all said and done, some of the Indian pastors came up to him and they tried to encourage him, but they also challenged him that he had to preach with power. This sermon today was not delivered to you because of however many many minutes or hours I spent preparing it. This sermon this morning is a preparation of my life. And this is what Ian Bounds says in his book, Power Through Prayer. This moment before you, why am I telling this story? Because when my boy got in the back of the taxi, he's now a big, strong, strapping man. This has been 20 years ago. He just cried his eyes out. He stood up, but 
But he didn't realize that a sermon is not a speech. He didn't understand how oppressive the forces of evil would be to shut him down and how unready he was to preach. I had three kids on that trip who all wanted to quit preaching. And you know what hard-hearted Ron told him? Ain't no way. You get down on your knees and you start praying and you come to the pulpit next time your turn's up with Holy Spirit power. It was a country where where we were at, there were very few Christians. But just because you were American and showed up didn't mean the devil went away and said, that's all right, let him have the day. Friends, I don't know how many more of our 12-year-olds need to stand up and get the spiritual jitters that drive them to their spiritual knees to say, Lord Jesus, please send me spiritual confidence. As Wesley said, set me on fire and let the people watch me burn. That's hard to teach. You have to be in one of those moments before you really understand it. So why do you have the card? Because by and large, we've been living on the wrong side of the Jordan. I'm appealing to you. Take your card. Pray. If you already know what God's saying to you to do, mark your boxes, write your name on the back, and give the card to a deacon on the way out of church. If you're not sure, this isn't the first, this is the first, but it won't be the last. But I don't want to be like Dwight Moody, who failed to give the invitation to come to Christ, and then the great Chicago fire came. If God's moving on your heart now, move now. We're ready to take your card. But by God's grace, may we have the spirit of Caleb and Joshua who gave themselves fully to God. Listen, friends. God's already promised. Our bread and our water will be sure. We have seen in the experience of this church that His prosperity has come with embracing the mission. This is just a new angle of the same story. And may our children and our homes be focused around having the spiritual power where we win, we don't lose. May God help us. And may God help you know if there's something on that card that's for you to do. I want to camp on the other side of the Jordan. I want to see Jesus face to face. I want to go with you. But it's time for us to realize we've got to make some things wrong, some things right, that were wrong through neglect. May God help us. May we take the journey. May we discover a very living God because harder times are on their way. You know what? 3,000 likes on Facebook, that's good. 1,200 followers on YouTube, that's good. 7,000 views of the invite, that's good. Do you know with one button in one location, all that could be shut down and we would have to do it the old-fashioned way. While we've got the opportunity, 
let's get in the game. Let's do what we got to do. And let's make sure that others know there's a living God. There's a, there's a security. There's a rock. And we can 